0: Well, happy new year and welcome back to Leadership, Legacy, and Love. This is Russell Fugit. Man, I hope you were inspired. And I hope the first few weeks of the year have already allowed you to make a little bit of noise in 2022. I'm excited to release this episode, special episode. Been kind of sitting on it for a while, but I thought MLK Day was a great occasion to release this episode um, as we celebrate and remember the life of Dr. King. Um, and of course, it's hard to believe, but it's already been, I think, three months since uh, General Colin Powell has passed away. So over the last few months since the General passed, I've collected a couple of stories, anecdotes um, about uh, the relationship between my uncle, Reginald F. Lewis. Um, You can go to ReginaldFLewis.com and get his backstory. He uh, uh, completed a billion dollar leverage buyout of Beatrice Foods in 1987. Uh, one of the largest food companies in the world at the time. And um, my my cousin Marcus will start us off with a wonderful brief story. Um, And I'll come back on the other side because he left a very important part out that he's told me. But I think when he sent me this recording, he forgot it. But I want to start with him. And then the second part will be um, a longer anecdote from my father, Gene Fugit, who upon the passing of my uncle, Reg, my father moved to Paris and took over Beatrice. But before he did that, he met with General Powell, who at the time was head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and him and my uncle, Tony Fugit met with uh, the general the day after my uncle's funeral in January of 1993. And the story is, is pretty amazing. And the context that my father provides Uh, To understand um, why the meeting was necessary and what my uncle had done to prepare my father uh, to take over the company really puts General Powell in perspective and to some extent as a byproduct gives some additional insight into what my uncle was able to accomplish in his life, um, which is still amazing, almost 30 years since his passing. So I'm going to start, though, by sharing a little bit of my brief interactions with Colin Powell. I never met him. And I just missed meeting him on one occasion. So we're summer of '98, and uh, Trinity College was starting, had built, and was ready to open the first ever boys and girls club on a college campus. General Powell had retired from government by that point, and um, this is about five or six years after the stories that my uncle, uh, well, my my father and my cousin rather, will will share in a moment. And so I'm working at Campus Safety, and uh, one afternoon, it was the middle of the week, you know, we know General Powell's coming. And I don't remember if I knew how he was arriving to campus, but a helicopter comes and lands on the soccer fields on campus. <laughs> and some security hop out, and the general hops out, and he walks over across, I think it's Broad Street, if my memory serves me correct, over to the Boys and Girls Club for a grand opening ribbon cutting I did not have the opportunity to go I was working but I remember watching um, the helicopter land and kind of seeing from a distance probably a couple hundred yards off in the distance right like him uh, getting out you know and it was just pretty cool and of course the next day was in the papers and online um, you know and saw the pictures and everything and he was there to open the first boys and girls club on the college campus and so I remember that uh, the next occasion I had a chance to interact with him, and I don't remember the year. It was at Georgetown Prep, my alma mater, as those of you who've listened know. And I uh, went. He was the Black History Month speaker, so I was invited as a special guest. Uh, I was one of the founders of the current iteration of the Black Student Union at Prep back in '95, I think it was right. So, anyway, he spoke and he gave a nice talk. I can't remember much about the talk. It was it was a, you know a, a very upbeat um talk that he gave i remember him coming and he he was by himself right very different than what my father will describe and my cousin will describe (laughs) and what i saw back in in uh probably at least man 10 12 15 years earlier this is you know probably around 2010 11 12 when he spoke at prep and um as soon as he left i remember jumping up And I think I might have walked around the steps to the stage to see if I could catch him, right? Or back behind, out the side front door to the stage. He was gone. He did not stay. I think he might have met in the back with the students from the Black Student Union, like briefly, but he did not stay. And I remember looking for him. He was gone. I did want to give him my father's and family's regards. um, And I regret not doing that. And I actually had an opportunity to send him a letter, and I didn't take advantage of it. Um, my father and I at the time were working on doing some stuff uh, with minor league baseball and um, I never closed the loop to reach out um, with to him and I regret that I never had the chance Um, but I'm happy that my cousin had the chance I'm happy of course my father had the chance and that he was uh, in our corner right and that my uncle had a relationship with him and was able to utilize that relationship um, so that Beatrice could could go forward after his passing so very fascinating stories. So first, we'll start off with my cousin, Marcus, telling his uh, two-minute story. And I'll come back on the other side and, and tell you the part that he left out.
1: Okay, so hello, everyone. My name is Marcus Fugit. I'm Russell's cousin. We he spent a ton of time together when we were younger, growing up together. And um, so he asked me to talk about the time that I met Colin Powell. Sounds pretty crazy, right? So it was 1992, late August, and I was with Reginald F. Lewis, Uncle Reg. He picked me up from camp for a week in the Hamptons before I started high school. And one day he's like, come on, we're going to go to this party. So we hop in the convertible. And I don't remember exactly where we were, but, you know, we ended up at your typical, you know, Hamptons function big house, you know, lawn, everyone very well dressed. And when we first get there, I noticed that there was a circle of military personnel. I'm like, wow, somebody really important must be here. Like, you know, is it a senator? You know, is the vice president here or something? You know, I didn't know. This was, you know, Big Hamptons, right? So we meet some of the people there and I'm going around with him. And then he goes over and just approaches and talks to one of the guys that's standing outside this circle. And then the circle opens up, and there he is, Colin Powell, just there, like, oh my God, okay, um, what's this guy doing here? <laughs> so he goes in and he talks to him for a couple minutes, and then I get waved over, and I'm pointing at myself like me, little old me. I I I get to go over and and Reggie's like, hey, you know, come on, so I go over, introduce myself, shook his hand and you know reggie had mentioned that i was about to start high school you know and he's like well what do you want to do and i said either baseball or computers he had a little laugh ended up being computers by the way but uh you know we just chatted this and that for a couple minutes and yeah so you know looking back on it i feel really fortunate you know the guy at the time especially was insanely popular you know a real you know icon for folks to look towards so yeah so there you go russ uh that was my hopefully not so boring story of when i met colin
0: powell shout out my cousin mark i ever got a computer problem that's my man so the one part he left out that he told me personally was that when he told general powell that he wanted to be in baseball or computers he encouraged him to go into computers and said the future of warfare will in fact be cyber. And that we're gonna need people like my cousin Marcus to be able to fight the wars of the future. So Colin Powell had the vision in 1992 to see that computers and cybersecurity and technology was in fact the future of warfare. Um, And it wouldn't necessarily be the traditional modes that required ammunition and tanks and ships and, and troops on a physical battlefield, but that they would in fact be digital warfare and so much of what we're seeing now I think some many of us aren't necessarily paying attention or aware about what's happening oftentimes until it it happens to uh, you know us or or a school system or a city or a hospital or or other places where we might be directly impacted but certainly um, Colin Powell was very ahead of his time and seeing where the future would go um, so that was great thanks again Marcus for for sharing that clip and sending that over now this, of course, the next and you know, last piece is about my dad and his story um, in terms of General Powell. So uh, you know, my father definitely provides some context. Um, you know, He's working on his writings and he has pages. I've seen physically printed out pages of his writing and hoping he's going to organize some of it in the coming months or this year to share more of it with the world. He's lived such a rich life and interacted with so many interesting people from the second half of the 20th century. Um, in media, in sports, in business, in government, and and on and on and on. Um, So it's just uh, so amazing and so rich. So I hope you enjoy this 15 minutes of my father telling uh, his story um, and his uh, interaction with General Powell and and what my uncle tasked him with and left for him to do.
2: I have to disclose that, uh, you know, I haven't told this story publicly before and um this, this will be in both books in my books and memoirs and and uh, also in the movie because I have I have a I have a movie outline that I didn't tell you that but I know I you've been movie, writing I know you've been writing but I have a movie outline and, and it starts at the funeral of my brother, where I'm vice chair and I'm flashing back. And it goes back to his final days. And it's very similar to uh, The Godfather when Michael Corleone is with his father and the tomatoes. And he's telling you him, who's the first person that's gonna try to stab him in the back. And the list was long and I was getting the same kind of talk since we had many companies of people who certainly would like to liberate themselves from the TLC umbrella Mm -hmm. and looking for any reason to break a deal, cause a problem or (laughs) worse, stab me in the back. So uh, those were my lessons as I went out and started to operate the company by day and then by night going back to him reporting back and. And then getting those instructions. And then, you know, part of those instructions were to uh, plan. And we would plan on a day to day basis. And then we would plan further out. And we certainly had to plan who was going to take my place because uh, uh, it just wasn't fair for me to uh, try to operate it and also, you know, have a, a vision as a principal in the family in terms of what the direction should be I mean should be somebody reporting to me not you know that I had to report to myself that that was going to be a failure at some point especially you know with my limited background and we knew that and he did not tell me about the security aspect and the danger
0: this is your brother you're talking about Yes, didn't tell you.
2: Uh, Reginald F. Lewis. Yes, uh, did not tell me mm-hmm. because he didn't want to scare me, and he knew that I would handle it just like that first kickoff with the Cowboys when I was scared as hell, running full speed, but somehow I would get to where I was going, and I think that's what he what he would liken it to, and he just wanted to make sure I was equipped to run full speed because he knew I had been trained to to be able to recognize, analyze, react, uh, all very quickly and still had that superpower, which is failing me now, which is a uh, photographic memory. So I could remember, uh, everything as I went by, if I needed to recall it, to, uh, help me in the future in some analysis. So we said that, uh, the perfect person to run this, uh, largest African-American company, let alone largest African-American international company, largest black minority owned, I mean, how many different ways you want to say it. Right, right. Uh, The other day I was just looking at some of our financials, man, it was a lot of money. And when we acquired it, it was pre-euro. Right so that we were in multiple countries but also multiple currencies and of course reg found a way to make money off that as well but maybe the story's been told maybe it has not (laughs) but uh, it was complicated and with the multiple jurisdictions and the multiple laws and the multiple embassies we needed somebody who had uh, that kind of experience which i running fast routes and working on wall street certainly did not so the ideal person was general Colin powell who at the time was the chief of staff so it was arranged that uh, i would meet him and it turned out that meeting was the day after the funeral in baltimore Mm -hmm. so we buried reggie and then the next day your uncle Tony Fugit and myself are being driven from Baltimore down the GW Parkway, Baltimore Washington Parkway, to eventually the Pentagon. Hmm. And this is 1993. Yep. And as we uh, got taken there and and to his office, it it was so impressive to go to the top general in the United States military's office. right. And uh, after passing all of the flags and a wall of telephones, we arrived at his anteroom and then on into his office, which had a view across the Potomac back uh, at the White House and the memorials. And I had never had uh, that view, I'd had the view from uh, the D.C. side of the Potomac uh, many times, but not that uh, Virginia side. I forget that the Pentagon is, in fact, in Virginia. Although I think it's in Washington, D.C., but it is across the river. And, and and there we were. So I'm still in shock. Let's face it, you know, my brother died, and it's crazy. I mean, now all of the training that I had up until to that point was – starting to kick in and i had to try to just go slow because you wanted to go fast because there's so many things and that's the hardest thing when you're multitasking because people think multitasking is doing a lot of things fast but true multitasking is doing a lot of things and if you do it well you'll actually do each thing slowly Hmm. and that can be hard to organize and maintain control of but that is what's necessary if you have over 30 businesses and you have over 50 people reporting to you. And then you have, I, I mean, I just can't even begin to list right. how long my list would be <laughs> every, every morning and every night. Right, Because I was heading into a situation in Europe where I would get up in the morning and, and take uh, your brother and sister to school. Mm-hmm. And then I would work the European side. Right now, and I'm six hours different from New York. So at noon, I would lunch, I would exercise, usually a tennis lesson, learning the art of clay tennis. Mm. Right. And then I would be uh, back at my office by two in the afternoon, Paris time, which is 8 a.m. New York time. And that's when it really started humping. So I would be humping nonstop now, working the US, my time from two p.m. to 6 p.m. and that would be from 8 p.m. to noon so that noon they go to lunch i go home to dinner right and after dinner i would take calls up to and past midnight and this would be on a you know monday through friday saturday basis because this is where the buck stopped and as uh reg did i insisted uh to be briefed informed and uh have the opportunity to have input into any decision that was important. And at this point, all decisions were important because the whole world was watching and they just assumed that the, uh, you know, based on the articles of the paper, whether I was qualified, this, that, and the other, that, that we were for sale and we were always for sale. That's, that's the thing
1: about it. Right. And, <laughs> and my
2: brother said it, that if someone, can use these assets more efficiently than we can, Then they deserve to have them, which is to mean everything has a price. Right. So, yeah, we're for sale, but we weren't marketing a sale. My mission was to consolidate, Mm -hmm. cut the fat, and then prepare for the sale. Mm. But we were hoping to get a transition that I could sort of oversee and manage it rather than have to -to day-to-day do it and that was the hope of of finding someone that we trusted and that's the whole key because when you're talking about a billion dollars and and somebody out of your family I mean heck even in your family Mm. they have to be tested and and so they can be trusted we really liked president reagan because he said he would definitely trust the russians but he would verify right (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll trust you, you know, as far as I can see you. Know I mean and and uh that's really kind of the attitude that we had to take where people wanted, Oh, this is good faith. You have to trust me. Oh yeah, I have good faith, but I, I ain't trusting you. <laughs> right, right, right. So So take that, me back that,
0: to that that room in the Pentagon, you and, and Uncle Tony and, and I guess the the, the general walks in.
2: Well, General uh, walks in and the first thing he does is he apologizes, you know, for not being at the funeral the day before, but there was some national emergency he claimed. I mean, I can't imagine him having (laughs) other things to do, but Mm -hmm. he said he couldn't make it uh, and that he had talked to uh, my brother before his death and they had made plans Mm. and let me brief you on them. So he gave me a briefing. Wow. Okay, And he had a Serbian who worked with him in Bosnia who was going to shadow me all over Europe and would contact every embassy before I got into the country. He was to coordinate with Captain Flannery, who was my pilot, who was former military. And he was totally briefed by the military. Mm -hmm. And it was his job to coordinate. With the embassies, exactly what I went in, and he said, "Whenever I go into another country, do whatever Flannery says." Right. Okay. And it's hard. It was hard, you know, for me to imagine uh, the danger of just not being in America. I mean, I know what my rights are in the United States, but once I go into another country. And with a role that I'm just assuming, heck, I could be indicted, charged, and in jail the next day. Right. Especially with some of the earlier experiences we had in Italy when uh, the owner tried to get get the company back on unfavorable terms. And we go to court and it finds out the judge is his cousin. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Right, right, right. Rich said we had to go to plan B on that one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We had to become friends. Right, right. And of course, as fate would have it, uh, that was our highest uh, spot. And that was the first stop that I would hit uh, later uh, the next day. But so we're in the meeting and uh, we're talking, and I asked, you know, for the vice. So after his briefing, uh I, I asked him uh you know what what his plans were trying to get into my mission. He had done his mission. You set up, you got security, right. we're always gonna know where you are. Right. You know, when you're gonna be living in Paris, you're gonna be followed everywhere you go. Everything you say is gonna be recorded. You can't have no new friends, and you certainly can't have any new girlfriends because they're gonna be trying to get to you right to find out what you're doing with the business. They want to get this business, which is owned by Americans, back in the French hands. You must understand you control 30% of the food in the city of Paris with over 207 stores owned outright by your company. And that's why you are a strategic, I forget the word he used. Asset,
0: right, you said? Well, I don't know about the
2: asset, mm-hmm. I mean, but you're something that I got to be monitored.
0: Right, right.
2: On on a twenty four hour basis, they're gonna want, they're gonna know where you sleep every night, right? And I'd never been in a role like that before, not in America, <laughs> certainly. And certainly. I knew enough about international affairs that people can end up in jail fast for stuff we would never even understand. So you know, it, it was you know I was uh, very confident because of course Reg had the best lawyers, and right. I kept the same lawyers. I, I wasn't you know changing uh, any of that. And I felt confident based on the fact that, that he had reviewed the situation in each company and had done the background checks, uh, you know, on the people because we were trying to find out right away uh, who was working for Carlton Investments, which was a Bernardi, uh shareholder in the company who had worked from day one to destabilize us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't even know who they were because it was a series of partnerships and they were the ones that sued us, and, you know, they were just trying to take the company away from us because we owned it outright 51%, but they had the other 49%, and we still don't know how they acquired it. Wow. Then the general, uh, as I I just uh, con- congratulate him, you know, on on, on what he has, has accomplished, and, and he talked about with pride about the organization that he established and talked about the phones and he could pick up a phone and be at any base in the world and it would be answered instantly and the fact that people think of it as a fighting force where he thought of it more as an educational institution he said he ran the best educational institution in the world because he can take a 18 year old and teach him how to take apart and put back together a plane Uh, or a tank and he can teach him how to fly it or drive it right Mm. so uh i'm going wow never really thought about it like that right so he said that he appreciates the you know because he did you know reg has sort of laid the the groundwork and i was trying to you know put the spade in a little deeper uh, as we say and Asked him to, you know, please uh, keep that in his, you know, closest considerations. And he said that he would and that he would continue to monitor my situation on a personal basis. He will get reports. And I thanked him and we left. And I headed uh, back to BWI where I said goodbye to Tony and got my assistance and headed off to Verona, Spain overnight to the first stop. Of many, where I had to go to every uh, business where we had partners to right. confirm that the the
0: deal is still on. Hmm. Yeah, I remember at least going on one of those uh, day trips to Barcelona, and I want to say we went to Germany, but I maybe didn't get off the plane or we dropped you off or something. But I I certainly remember you know ninety three, and I guess the first part of ninety four as well. In the '94. So, well, thanks for sharing that, that that story. That's an amazing story. I'm sure one of a one of a kind story about about General Powell. He's
2: a great man, and uh, he would. I mean, we would still have bitches if he had taken that job.
0: I believe it. Wow! well I hope you enjoyed that story. I mean, I still hear some new nuances in there every time. And definitely, as I get older, have a different appreciation for the scope and the magnitude of, of what my uncle and then my father um, had to, to, well, achieved and then had to uh, do every day to to keep going forward, um, owning 30% of the grocery stores in Paris and really what the scope and the size of what they did and the assets they controlled and what it meant, right, in the geopolitical sense. And that's one element that is not often, if ever, really discussed in terms of what my uncle, Reginald F. Lewis, accomplished in, in owning, um you know, was it like 30, Is it 50 companies in 30 countries, right? Like, and you're talking about food. <laughs> and I think after the last two years of, you know, and in recent weeks, things not being on the shelf, you understand how controlling the food supply can certainly have an impact on a lot of things in the society. And so how my uncle and then later my father um, was uh, critical um, to, you um, the safety and sovereignty, right? Of countries like France. Um, so just amazing. Um, so as we remember, you know, General Powell, it's been three months since he passed. I, I just thought that it would be interesting to share you know, a little bit of my family's interactions with the general as we remember him. Um, and you know, what he represented to so many of us, um, on this MLK day, um, and the promise of, uh, of MLK's dream, um, and, and the work that still needs to be done, uh, for that dream to, Um, become a reality. And it goes, if you guys listen to this podcast, you know me, I'm not here harping on I Have a Dream speech where so many folks in our country act like that was the last speech he ever gave. There's so much more uh, after the next five years after the March on Washington of what he said that we still really in this time need to sit with. Um, But I just thought I would share something encouraging and upbeat today and something that I just thought was interesting. And like I said, I've been sitting on it for a little while. So Thank you for listening to Leadership Legacy and Love. We're going to come back in this space on the last Friday of the month, and another short episode. My father just um, is going to be with us again. It was one interview I chopped it up, and he's just sharing some thoughts on on being seventy. And um, I might come on and, and riff and will add some things to it. I'm still, you know, sitting with it myself and what he shared, what was on his mind and his heart as he turned uh, seventy years old uh, last month in December of twenty twenty one. So. Um, and then we'll think about and see what we got coming out the, uh, the pipeline for February, which is, of course, Black History Month. But, um, you know, we'll see what direction we go in. So thanks for listening. Have a wonderful MLK day. Uh, be encouraged. And we'll be back in this space in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening to Leadership, Legacy and Love. Please share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.